welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. This conversation is with Evan Peck. Evan's an assistant professor of computer science at Bucknell University. Evan talks about how when he was a PhD student, he thought that his career options boiled down to looking at a top research school or working in industry. He's now an evangelist for liberal arts colleges like Bucknell as an additional career option that he wishes PhD students would seriously consider. Evan has a passion for teaching and he also wants to do good research, but when he was looking around for a faculty position, he decided he didn't want to trade off family life and life quality to do it all, as he thought he might have to do in some positions. Here he talks about his decision processes in getting to Bucknell and his current experiences as a new faculty member in learning how to be very deliberate about his use of time so that he can include teaching, research and family. There's also a link below on the webpage for a great blog post he's written on this topic. So thanks, Evan, for joining me today. Thanks. Um, I'm glad we could do it. Yeah, and I've been really keen to talk to you since I saw your blog post where you wrote a reflection on how you ended up at um, Bucknell, which we'll get to in a tick. Sure. Um, you were also part of an early career development workshop uh, that we had at the beginning of this conference. Mm-hmm, with excellent mentors. Oh, uh, <laughs> Thank you. And I loved the way you talked there about wanting to be, wanting to evangelise that to people that get it out there that there are different career paths and different models. So, you know, that's, that's the thing that I'm really excited to talk to you about here. And just by way of background, can you just fill us in where, you, you know, where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, I... And since this will connect later on, I started at a liberal arts college. So for those of us who aren't in the U.S. context, mm, yeah. what does that mean? So it, there are a couple kind of characteristics of these kinds of colleges. Um, one is that they're small, typically. Mm-hmm. So um, Bucknell, where I'm at, is considered a large one with 3,000 students. Um, they are probably the most significant thing is everyone has breadth requirements, which basically means even if you're a computer science major, mm-hmm. you can't get away with just taking computer science and math and physics courses. You have to take things in the humanities. You have to take things in the social sciences. Um, that's sort of the, the, the trademark of these kinds yeah. of colleges. Yeah. Which seems actually really important and sensible. Right. And especially from a you know, human-computer interaction perspective, yeah. it's a, I think it's a very exciting place to be. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of working there, too, right, it's typically more teaching-focused. Right. Um, so there's a, a much higher emphasis on us excelling in the classroom, mm. uh, on one-on-one engagement. So um, all of our courses, for the most part, we cap at 30 students in a lecture section. That's very wow. typical of a lot of these. Wow. Um, so we know all of our students' names. It's a very interesting environment. Because some of our lectures um, have, will, will have hundreds of students, especially in the first year. Yeah. Three, four, five hundred students, depending. Yeah, so we might have, be running four or five different lecture sections of Introduction to Computer Science. Okay. But we really try to keep it, um, the classroom size, pretty low. So that's why you have more teaching, but you teach it, you might teach that course, but you might have to repeat it four times. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, and my teaching load isn't quite that high. And so there's a lot of diversity in these liberal arts schools, mm. too, in terms of yeah. how much you teach versus how much um, research is expected of you. Mm. Um, especially in, in, in my case, and probably the top 30 or 40 or a grouping of 30 or 40 liberal arts schools, they try to clear up some of your teaching time to stay involved in your mm-hmm. in research. Um, that's not true of all of them, but that's, yeah. that's true of Bucknell. Yep. Yep. So what, what was your path getting to Bucknell? So, like I said, I started at a small liberal arts school. And oh, you then, did start at a small liberal yeah, arts school. Yeah, I did. Um, but it was one in which my professors, for the most part, weren't engaged in research. Uh, so I was I associated it with more with just purely teaching. Mm. Um, from there, I went to Tufts University. I got my PhD in computer science. I did work in brain-computer interfaces mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with Rob Jacob in the human-computer interaction is this, lab is this there. wearing those... You know, uh, Swimming caps with all the wires coming off. <laughs> yeah, and we had even a different one. So it was almost like uh, you can almost imagine two square erasers being put on your forehead. <laughs> it was light-based. <laughs> Sounds weird. Yeah. Um, and I think towards the end of that, I had actually, we had, uh, my wife and I had a child while I was in graduate school, mm. which of course rearranges your priorities mm. pretty significantly. Mm. It, early on or towards the end? Uh, about I think about two years from the end, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, and we had in 2012, and mm. I graduated in 2014. Right. Yeah. So I think that was probably a point where you start. I started kind of critically thinking about what I wanted. Mm. Um, critically thinking about what, almost what measures of success mean, um, what impact means, mm-hmm. uh, and what I wanted out of those things. Because I think that up until that point, and probably up through almost going on the job market, uh, I think I had a very kind of typical graduate student perspective. Uh, I was just talking to someone recently at the conference who uh, was talking to me about this, you know, Mm -hmm. just your idea is for, well, you you look at the top schools, and the top Mm -hmm. schools are the top schools are the top success, and so if you get a job in those, and it kind of almost, you almost almost follow rankings that are online, right? right? And as a measure of success. And so is there this sense that if you don't get into a top school, you're not as good, so you have to compromise and get into a middle school? Or, you know, so is that, is that ranking reflecting your own um, position, I guess? Yeah, I think so. And I think to some extent there is... I think it especially comes down to kind of... Once I started kind of reflecting on the things I enjoyed spending my time on too... Yeah. Um, so even, even aside from whether you can get into them or not, I think I hit a point where I realized, well, even if I were to be productive at the rate of someone at a top school, I think I would be miserable doing it. Right. Why? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. There's something about the pace. And, and, and to be completely clear, there are people there who that fits the way they want to spend the time yeah. beautifully. Yeah. Right? And they have these wonderful work-life balances somehow. <laughs> Um, and I'm really, in, I'm really impressed by them. Um, but every time I saw myself in those particular environments, um, or imagined myself in those particular environments, I think that the pacing somehow of, of I think, um, especially focusing on grants, um, kind of most of them, I don't want to be too categorical here, mm. nudging away from undergraduates, mm-hmm. um, nudging away from teaching a little bit. 
Um, it would, I think it would take me longer because those are ways I didn't want to spend my time. Right. Um, and so whenever I imagined myself in those environments, it was very much, um, it felt like it would devour my life, either in terms of time or just kind of emotionally mm-hmm. or um, mm. in terms of stress. Stress from? I think probably the tenure process. Right. Um, when you look at universities, and they say, you know, here are the things that are valuable to us. And if those don't align with the things that are valuable to you, yeah. um, I mean, it, I think it's this way with, with anything. The things that you don't want to do are a little bit more taxing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right? they take a lot more energy, don't they? Right. Yeah. Um, and so if you're at a university, which your benchmarks mm. involve things that you don't want to spend um, at least in, all your time doing or an enormous percentage of mm. your time, um, I think it, it can seem very overwhelming. Mm. And that's completely independent of even being able to get into those mm. positions. Yeah. Um, so to me, that I, I, and towards the end of graduate school, I thought I was going to industry. Right. Yeah, I really did. So you'd gone through this thinking process going, I don't really want to buy into the model that's expected in these top-ranked institutions. Right. So your alternative to that was industry. Right, because I thought that academia was kind of two pillars, right? It was the, 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 the very heavily research-focused mm. um, and very heavily teaching-focused, which was similar to the school I went to. Mm. So it was either one or the other. And you had had experience in both. So you, right, you, exactly. You did know what you were talking about and or I, thinking about. I do love my research community. I actually I love doing research. Um, I don't want to do it all the time, but I, I love being part of this community. There are people here who inspire me. Mm. Um, I think it's a very exciting place to be. And so when I saw the teaching schools at the other end of the spectrum, mm. it meant being completely cut off, mm. uh, which also wasn't something I was right. interested in. So in what way did industry seem to be attractive then? Um, I think that there are a couple factors. I had, um, I had an industry internship during graduate school. I was at Adobe in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I seem to really like, and this might have been particular to that lab, who knows, but they seem to have a really nice work-life balance. They mm-hmm. were doing research, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, they had families, and they would spend time socializing with each other, and it didn't seem to consume them. Right. Um, it wasn't their entire identity. Yep. Yep. Um, and so I think that aspect of it appealed to me. I mean, yeah. to some extent, I think that, and part of this is just, getting towards the end of graduate school. Graduate school is just a, a kind of a grind no matter what way you take it. And mm-hmm. so I think to some extent, whenever you hear someone talk about something that even remotely resembles a nine-to-five job, this is speaking music <laughs> to a graduate student's ears. <laughs> yes. But, but did you particularly start thinking about this after you had your kid? Or was it something that you were aware of and thinking about before? I'm just wondering what was the trigger for really connecting with and starting to identify what was important to you? I think it probably was after having a kid. Um, I had to shift my own work habits pretty yeah. significantly. Mm. I had the, the pretty typical graduate student schedule come in 10, 10.30, mm. leave, I don't know, 7.30, maybe mm. later, whatever, mm. you know, random, yep. pick pick some random time between yeah. five and midnight yep. to leave. <laughs> and, and actually, once we had my son, I, I sort of realized, well, if I do that, 
I am never home for him going to bed. You know, I, I almost miss it entirely. Yeah. Um, he was going to daycare pretty early in the morning, uh, especially early, right when he was born. So if I held that same schedule, I'd see him for maybe a half hour a day. Mm. Um, and that just didn't seem reasonable. So mm-hmm. I shifted my own work schedule. Um, I was in the Boston area, so getting up real early, doing the morning commute, which meant I was in before, probably three hours before most graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> probably three hours of productive work time as well. Yeah, is that right? People around distracting. Uh, And trying really hard to kind of set a boundary and barriers on Mm -hmm. that upper limit. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are really good at doing, I think, I know some people in academia who are amazing at doing that. I I couldn't see myself doing that in some universities very easily. For reasons we talked about earlier. I think it would become more consuming. so in what ways do people, do you, did you put up boundaries or have you seen others put up boundaries at work? What sort of boundaries? I mean, I think, I think you just almost, scheduling-wise, mm. you almost put on your calendar, this is when I'm done for the day. And this is the amount of time I have to get work done. And if it doesn't get done, then it happens tomorrow, not, tonight, not during dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or not, uh, not immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always succeed. <laughs> yeah, of course. But having it as a general uh, stance. Right. Mm. Um, so again, this was something that you started doing more after you had your, your child. Yeah, so those priorities started becoming a lot more important yeah. to me. I didn't know how that fit onto the job market. I think that's why I started leading industry. Because yeah. to me that felt just, I mean, just the way companies work. You yeah. know, they're kind of... This is the time most people come in. This is yeah, the time most people most, leave. Yeah. You can see that structure much more clearly yeah. as a graduate student. Yeah. Um, and it seemed much more appealing. Mm. Um, and also it felt like there was an industry. I mean, most, uh, most companies are in appealing places to live, too, mm. right? <laughs> yeah. And so you see these factors starting to line up a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And it becomes uh, very appealing, yeah. I think, very quickly. Yeah. How easy was it to maintain those boundaries in a culture that, you know, when maybe the majority, was it, of others weren't also doing the same thing? You know, I will, I will say this. I think that I was very lucky in that I had a wonderful advisor who was very sensitive to these things. When we had our son, uh, Rob basically came to me and basically said, I don't want to see you for a month. That's lovely. Um, That's brilliant. You know, go, go home. Um, be with your family. And he's always been like this. It's always been very clear mm. to all of us mm. that these were things he emphasized. Mm. So in our lab culture, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't a problem. Um, but I think it's typical with graduate students, you try to compare yourself against mm. the best graduate students across mm. the world. You come to Kai and see the graduate student with three <laughs> Kai papers, and you say, how would I do that? Well, the only way I can figure out how to do that is um, you know, working 15 hours a day. Yeah. That might not be what those students are actually doing. Yeah. <laughs> but when you kind of extrapolate your, what you're getting done yes. to triple, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that it just feels very overwhelming, mm. certainly. Yeah, and I think that there are challenges when you set those boundaries. There are times where you feel like, well, if I, if I didn't have these boundaries, mm. um, I'd be able to be more mm. productive. But it's all, it's all trade-offs, right? Because you, you have that, that second moment and say, yeah. well, would I trade it? No. Yeah. Yes, it is all trade-offs. You have right. to really explicitly think about writing a paper, time with the kid. Right. And so, for, I mean, I think that's 
really important is that second level, right, of mm-hmm. thinking, where mm-hmm. the first level says I'm, I'm missing out on something, mm-hmm. but the second level then says, would I trade it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, Good question. And very often, and at least in that case, it was no, I wouldn't yeah. trade that. Yeah. Um, and that make I think that helps come to terms with some of those mm. uh, decisions. Um, I, I think you also pointed to two two things that are really interesting there as well. And one is the really important role that the the team leader, the the, you know, the head of the institute, or whatever role it is, what the really key role they play in setting the culture yeah, and setting absolutely. the expectations. You know, that, that sounds like a wonderful advisor you know, and support to have there. Oh, absolutely. And there is a tracker. And the, part of this was coincidence, but mm. the graduate students who had come before me had all had children actually while mm. doing their PhD. Must be something in the water. Then. <laughs> I know. I mean, we used to joke about it to new, P- new graduate students. <laughs> it's, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, you better be careful. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but it was nice because, the, yeah, that path was already well paved That's by the good. people in front of me. Yeah. So it, I was very lucky next, and mm. I wasn't breaking new ground. Mm. I didn't have to have really uncomfortable conversations about uh, But still, that. the advisor still could have set an attitude that said, well, I still expect you to come in. You know, like, this doesn't change things. Right, yeah. right, right, sure. Mm. Yeah, but he didn't. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I have to give, you know, all the credit to yeah. him for that. Yeah, and, and the second thing was about comparing yourself to others. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very tempting to take the top, you compare yourself against the best in anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, even now, right? I mean, I have kind of this double life of teaching and research. And it's very easy to you, you take the best teacher and the best researcher. Oh, and, right? and where, where do you then sit? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think that yeah, that's very tempting. Um, um, but again, I remember even going up for the job market, um, I remember discussing, we used to talk about these things in our lab, obviously, mm-hmm. and bringing that up with Rob. And I remember him saying, well, they only get one job. They only mm-hmm. take one of the jobs. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. which, is, which is easy to forget. <laughs> yeah. So then what, what led you, so you, you were thinking more in industry, mm-hmm. what led you back to liberal arts then? The advice that I should just apply everywhere and not limit my options, it wasn't and, even deliberate until uh, I was really doing campus visits. So, and who, who was that advice from? Um, also Rob, my advisor, okay. yeah. So he's, he's been, as you can tell, just he a wealth like of good advice. He sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, so he basically said, you know, just apply everywhere. You can always decide you don't like it later. Yeah. Some place might surprise you. Um, and I, I've, I've been open before. You know, I've, I, there were some places I applied, especially liberal arts schools. When I, I remember after, immediately after applying to them, thinking, why did I, why did I spend time applying to them? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I thought they were just very teaching. Again, mm. fit one of those two molds, mm. which I wasn't sure I really mm. wanted. Mm. Um, but I was lucky that I did, mm. almost through random reasons, decide to apply to them. Um, I wish it had been more deliberate in the end. Um, and that's why, I mean, this is partly why I'm really, I want to be really vocal in having, in hoping that graduate students think about this stuff more in advance. Yeah. There was a lot that came down to, I just happened to see it, um, and I happened to apply. Also, 
we're extremely fortunate to be coming on the job market in computer science at a moment in which computer science positions are exploding everywhere, yeah. Yeah. which the PhD pipeline isn't as strong because of the bubble, you know, many years ago, mm -hmm. as it will be maybe in a few years. Mm -hmm. um, so I had the opportunity of, you know, doing numerous campus visits, actually seeing these places up close and sort of figuring out my priorities on the fly. Yeah. You know, when I talk to a lot of my friends in similar situations and, you know, the humanities or social science, yeah. they do not have that luxury. Yeah. Um, you know, if they didn't know in advance, I mean, th yeah. there is only one option. Um, so I think that that's part of the reason why, you know, I look at my own experience and say, you know, I, I really like my job. There are many ways in which I could have missed it. You know, how yeah. can I mitigate some of that for other people yeah. coming, uh, coming behind? So what would being more deliberate look like then? I think some of it is, and this is why I, I try to get across in you know, the post I wrote about this is... Which, which I will link on the web page okay. as well so that people can access it. Great. Um, it's understanding that these, these perceptions, that things fit cleanly into these categories of industry versus academia or teaching school versus research school just isn't reality, I think, mm -hmm. once you start seeing them up close. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy to see things through the lens of... Um, when you come to a conference, most people presenting are at top schools. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to get a perception of academia that is very filtered through that lens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they're the most visible. Yeah. You know, they're doing amazing work, and so they're most visible. And so that's what you see of academia, mm. and that's your representation mm. of academia. Um, and it turns out when you visit these places, it gets a lot muddier. Mm. And what you also, you, you see the amazing work but you don't see the trade-offs that you talked about before that are behind getting that work done. Right, exactly. And, yeah, that concerned me, I think, to some extent. And, you know, I want to be a little bit careful because this is, this is very personal in the sense that I think if I went to a school like that, mm. it would dominate my life, yeah. right? Yeah. But I have many colleagues at, um, you know, elite universities mm who do a, 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 an amazing job of mm. kind of being active with their family, active mm. in the community, mm. and still get all this research done. So it's a case of knowing yourself. Yeah, I, I really think so, you know. You know, what are the things that I um, take joy doing? Mm. Um, and I knew kind of, and this is what I kind of discovered when I was on the job market, I think I knew a little bit beforehand. I knew that no matter what university I was going to be in, I was going to invest a significant amount of time in the classroom, in the classroom experience. Because you love teaching. I love, yeah, I love communicating mm -hmm. ideas, getting students excited about computer science. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't discover human-computer interaction, my subfield, till very late um, in my undergraduate career. Mm -hmm. And so um, exposing students to this, this is a field that I think that there's a certain subset of students that just... It, may, it clicks, yeah. right? Um, like many students I've talked to, as a computer science student, um, I had enough credits to get an English, a creative writing minor at the time. I felt I had these two lives in undergraduate and no idea how they could come together. Yeah. Yep. Um, and being able to share those perspectives. So I knew that was going to be important. Yep. And so then the question was, if I'm spending time in this, is it going to be rewarded or not? <laughs> Right. Is this actually part? Will the people around me say, this is part of you excelling in your job? Yeah. Or is it something that's um, 
almost to put it crudely, an obstruction to, re- yeah. to the re- your research yeah. endeavors. You get your teaching done as quickly as possible so you can get back to what's important. Right. And again, even around the research schools, there's a large spectrum of this. Yeah. But there, is, there are some with that attitude. Um, and there was one interview I was in where that was almost explicitly told to me, you know, where it was, you know, what you do, the way you succeed is you make sure the students don't hate you, but you don't want to, you know, raise the bar too much above that because that's just a waste of your time. Um, and so that was very clear that mm. Um, mm. that wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. um, and... You know, at my current position, I don't want to tell people it's fewer hours than another job, but it feels like fewer hours mm-hmm. because it's investing in things that I want to be spending time yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and it, the, of course, there are stressful moments. I don't think yeah. you can get away yeah. from most jobs without stressful moments and feeling run down at times. Uh, yeah. And the whole the rhythm of academic years, you, know, you can almost sort of pinpoint more likely stressful times in that as well. Right. You talk to any of us in late November mm. and, mm. you know, I might have a very different perspective of how I feel about <laughs> academia. So we won't come back. Or maybe we will. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but overall, I mean, that's what I found my, my first year at Bucknell mm. was uh, your first year teaching is really taxing. Yes. Um, it's yeah. exhausting. Uh, but when I started thinking about, wow, I'm doing as many hours as I was towards the end of my PhD, mm. but it still didn't feel like it. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and so I think that's where I saw, okay, this is, these are the kinds of things I want to invest my time yeah. in. So when you're doing something you want to invest your time in, it doesn't feel like the time is onerous. Yeah, not, certainly not to the same degree, mm. I think, because I mm. think that was how I felt towards the end of my PhD. Yeah. Just everything felt like a grind. Yeah. Just everything was... Yeah exhausting and everything was just you just come home every day what did i what did i do today but i'm exhausted Um, whereas you you put in the same hours and from teaching and do you come home feeling a little bit more and part of it is actually just the way they're structured if you're teaching more you're getting faster feedback Mm. to some extent because you walk into the classroom you see how your preparations went you get that feedback from student either worked or it different it didn't so to some extent, the feedback loops are a lot faster, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is nice. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's just something that I need. But the, the much slower feedback loops of research can be pretty tough. Uh, I, you know, I was one of those grad students. It took me a long time to get my first paper accepted, a real long time. Mm. Um, and so when you, when you go years without kind of those kind of reward feelings, mm. um, it just, it just, mm. I think it just takes a toll. To and reward extent. feelings for things that you care about. Right, exactly. Uh, this is the big shift to graduate school, right? Yeah. Is that in undergraduate you have your work you're doing and then your social life and then there are all these different people. Your identity is mm. mixed up in mm. so many different things. Mm. And, mm. and the students around you see you in all those things. Yeah. In graduate school, it's really easy to fall into this trap that your identity is the work you're doing. And these, that's why, I think that's why these rejections feel so much more personal. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's just oh, I got to see it in that homework assignment mm-hmm. and then I can move on from it. It's like, mm-hmm. well, this is what I chose. This is what I want to do. <laughs> and they rejected it. Right, and they rejected it. So how'd you handle them? Um, I just kept on, kept on working, I guess. Uh, I don't know, it was pretty demoralizing. I mean, the first, you know, the first one's par for the course. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it went, I think when they start piling up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course... 
to some extent, I think it's kind of short-term thinking in that you know, it's not like all that work was going for nothing. Mm. So I did finally have a year where you know, a couple that piled up all came through at mm. the same time. Mm. And then you feel like a king for three straight months. <laughs> <and> <laughs> Uh, but there's an urgency, right? Again, it's this comparison point. You say, oh, no, I only have this many papers by this time in my PhD life. And you start kind of moving forward, and you see the clock ticking down yeah. to when you're going to be on the job market. Yeah. Uh, and knowing what other people are right. imagining what other people who will be competing on the job market will right. have. And you look at the CVs of people who are publishing four papers a year. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's an exhausting way to go about mm. things. I don't know a way to fix that, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one because different styles of work also have different rhythms as well in terms of publications. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the tough things about, you know, I think making this message that there are these alternative jobs and liberal arts schools mm. and teaching schools, that these are fantastic places to mm. work mm. because there aren't many signals along the way in your PhD program to see that. Mm. Uh, there are some PhD programs now that are integrating kind of research or teaching courses, which is exciting. Mm. Um, but for the most part, teaching is a distraction from your research and your PhD. Your PhD is getting done research. Yeah. Um, and so it's really hard to discover these things along the way, I mm. think. It's really hard to accidentally run into something. Um, another reason I was fortunate with this was that one of, our, um, one of my lab members who graduated about when I arrived went to a liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see her being very active, yeah. still in research, right. um, and having excellent students and seeing the reward of her sending them out to PhD programs. Mm. Um, so that was really nice to see, too. So there, okay. were, there were clues there. Yeah. I didn't pick up on them, I yeah. think, till the last minute, but yeah. there were hints along the way. Back on them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so was it a hard decision to make in the end when you got the offer? Yeah, it still was. Um, I think there is concern... Not in the, I mean, I always felt like if I didn't like this, I could probably hop back over to industry. I think the concern is when you, when you think about mobility in academia, um, there are some directions that are harder to go than others. Yeah. Um, so I, I think one of the concerns was if you go to a liberal arts school and after three years you don't like it, well, you're, you're not going to be publishing with the same velocity of, some, of most other people who are spending all their time doing research. And what impact does that have on you if you decide mm. you wanted to do research after mm. all? You know, what doors does that close? Yeah. So it's still a pretty scary decision. Yeah. Um, and there's the reality that many liberal arts schools are um, in very rural areas, pretty geographically isolated. Mm -hmm. um, so it's big, big family decisions. Mm -hmm. Are these places that we want to live? Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's so, so many factors. How, how did you weigh them up then in the end? I mean, obviously, you know, the final answer was yes, because you took right. the job and there you are. But <laughs> you know, how did you weigh them up? What factors ended up playing more importantly in the decision? I think it was the campus visits and speaking to faculty there. And you just, you, you get a sense of what people's lives are who work places when you go and visit them, mm. um, which I didn't, I don't, I just didn't, when you see people in other environments, <laughs> I think it's different. Yeah. But when you go and visit these schools and see them from the inside 
and talk to them while they're in their own buildings. Mm. I think certain things creep out a little bit. Um, you know, I went to one where I just remember the assistant professors just did seem miserable, to be frank. Um, I can't do that again. You know, I'm already worn out. I'm already tired. I can't do that all over again. Um, and when I went to a school like Bucknell um, and a couple others I visited too, I think one thing I was really impressed with was this kind of, they're very serious about the work. They invest a lot of time in their work, but at the same time, they would have conversations about their family um, about, I don't know, going, you know, taking vacations mm -hmm. or um, being in a music group around the area. Um, it was clear to me that their sole identity wasn't inside the office. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, this is one of the, the interesting side benefits to, I think, having a tiny school in a more um, geographically isolated place mm -hmm. is actually the community that forms around it is very strong. So if you take the same school and plunk it next to a large city, what happens is people live all over the place. Right? Some people live in the city. Some people live because they're commuting. Um, when you have a small school and plunk it, mm. you know, not very close to a city, most people live within three miles of each other. You run into each other all the time, which is horrifying for <laughs> thought for some people. Um, but there is a real sense of community that happens there. And there's a, a real sense that the community values not just you, by your family. I mean, we had, we had a daughter in the fall, and when, um, when she was born, uh, people brought us meals for about a month and a half straight. Wow. We did, I don't think we picked up a pot. Wow. <laughs> for about a month and a half straight. That's impressive. Um, and it was very clear. I actually took six weeks paternity leave, and everyone said, go do it, go. You know, there was no hesitation, just go. Mm. You know, don't, we don't mm. want to hear from you. Mm. Get out of here. <laughs> um, mm. And so those factors were really important yeah. on the, the family yeah. side. And then just, yeah, the way they spent their time. I mean, professionally, I mean, it fit on both sides. You know, I don't think I was conceding anywhere professionally, specifically mm -hmm. um, for my family. Like I said before, it was how I wanted to spend my time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're doing awesome work with undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. You have amazing students who come to these uh, universities. Um, and as an HCI person, it seemed like, there was a need for people who had interdisciplinary. It, was, it seemed like a really beautiful marriage to me. Yeah. You have all these students who chose this place not because they want to go to a big technical school. They chose it because they still have interests. Many of them have, you know, they're, they're musicians plus computer science majors. They're artists plus computer science majors. Yeah. But they see them as these two kind of separated entities. Mm. And so it was really... Uh, it's really nice to kind of go place mm. and you say, I have a role there and I know that I can be valuable to the people there. Mm. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, so it was a very exciting and it, it still is. Mm. How long have you been there now then? I'm finishing up my third year. Third year. Yeah. So what have been, what's been the biggest challenge in settling, moving from a grad student to a faculty member? You have to get a lot more organized. <laughs> yes. Most graduate students aren't working on 10 things at once. Um, I don't even think, you know, I, as a graduate student, I don't even think I held a consistent calendar <laughs> because it's just, I kind of knew what the day was going to look you, like. Yep. Um, yep. Um, and now your time is just splintered across many things. You have to be productive with, with the short pockets of time, um, especially at a school that's a little bit more teaching focused. Mm -hmm. You have to think very clearly and deliberately how you want to be productive doing research. Um, so what have you learned 
over these three years about how to do that? Because clearly you have been, because you're here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, again, I think it's just understanding what, um, a little bit understanding what your strengths are, what the rhythms of the semester are. It's really kind of, it's really being reflective on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, during the school year, I tend to be, collaborate a lot more with external collaborators who have a little bit more bandwidth and I can add valuable pieces, mm -hmm. but I don't have to be working all the time on it. Um, during the summer, I can more launch my own projects with a heavy student involvement. Um, yeah, I don't know. Now I have a very clear calendar. <laughs> now you have a clear calendar? Or not a clear calendar. Now I use a calendar. Oh, it's okay. very you, full. Um, I'm right. very dogmatic about my it's... calendar now. I keep updated with everything. <laughs> so do you, when you said being reflective, do you actually deliberately sit down and think about how am I going to schedule in this research or is it just more reflective on the fly? Yeah, I think, I mean, what we're um, encouraged to do is really even set in our calendar. These are the times we work on research. Um, partly because we all do care about teaching. We care about the classroom. Mm. And um, I think as anyone who's taught anything before knows, that can be an unending yeah. cycle of work. Yeah. Um, you can always improve your lecture you, a little you bit can better. Always improve yeah. your lecture and your slides <laughs> and update the material and yep. Yes, you really have to be deliberate about the way you use your time. Mm. So, can you say more about you know like the learning the process the learning process that you've gone through and how to do that practically? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I, should, I guess I should be more reflective mm -hmm. about that. Um, part of it, I think, is understanding, at least for me, like where I can be high impact. So there's always concessions, right? Um, and there's that way in research. You know, I think I can talk, just in the context of research, I've been thinking a lot lately. You know, how can I be high impact, given that I'm not going to publish four papers a year, given that I don't have graduate students? Mm -hmm. You know, are there areas, are there topics that are more high impact? What resources do I have available to me locally that maybe other people don't have? Um, what voice can I have in the community that other people don't have? Mm -hmm. um, I think that process is useful in a lot of ways. Um, so especially my first year teaching when there's not enough time to even do the bare basics of what you think you should do. Um, for me, I determined that my time in the classroom was the most valuable thing. And granted, some things, you know, some structural things slid, some grading things mm -hmm. slid a lot. Um, but because I knew that's what I was really strong at, was communicating mm. in the classroom, mm. I invested a little bit more time there. Um, was it easy to let those things slide, or was there still a bit of tension? In, you know, yeah, there's always tension, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, you feel, because you see the value of all of them, as a student, you know, I, could, I liked it when there was more structure. You want that feedback loop to be closed tighter. So you get feedback. This is a really important part of learning, right, is getting feedback. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you, you're, you're, and when you're conceding on those things while still trying to excel in the classroom, it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think that to some extent you hit a point where you say, well, I only have this much time. What benefits the students the most? <laughs> you know, if I only have two hours to prep for this. Mm -hmm. You know, how am I gonna spend those two hours? You know, if they, if I get all the structure and grading mechanisms right, 
Um, but I don't figure out a way to motivate something in the class. They're not going to even care about the rest of the assignment anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of emphasizing those pieces. And you start slowly building up mechanisms to help counter those pieces, right? But a little structure one year, that helps the second semester. Mm -hmm. um, you figure out how to um, use your help a little bit better. Um, so I think it's, it's a slow process, kind of getting all those pieces to work together. Yep. Um. So you sound very, like, th th that's very strategic thinking mm -hmm. and very reflective thinking. Have you always been like that? Is, is that a natural ability or is it something you've had to learn to do? I think I've always been like that to some degree. Mm. Um, I think that some of the, I think it was helped in graduate school. I think the people I were around, the professors I was around, both my advisor, Rob Jacob, and also um, someone else who was around a lot, Remco Chang, who came along kind of halfway through my, mm. they're both very reflective. Remco's a new professor at the time, mm. and I saw him trying to, you know, what structures do I put into place and wrestling with these same ideas mm. and, and seeing the value of kind of reflecting on uh, not just let's do research, but what are the pieces that actually can help us as a group? What are the structural pieces there? Um, so I think seeing the value of those things mm. up close was yeah. definitely yeah. helpful. But I think to some extent I was always that way a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But it sounds more so now. It sounds more well honed and... Yeah, and to some extent I think it's out of necessity. Um, yeah, I think mm. especially when I talk about kind of interacting with my research community. Mm. Yeah, I'm much more constrained in terms of my resources compared to most you know, people at the same conference. Mm. I have to think a lot more clearly you know, what voice can I have? You know, what's what would this community find very valuable? Um, and to me, I think, I really think it's kind of letting graduate students know that they can, um, that there's a huge spectrum of jobs. Yeah. You know, that, that they can have a set of priorities that maybe doesn't even, um, maybe doesn't even um, work well with graduate school. This is, I think this might be one of the hardest things, right, is that you could be miserable in graduate school and still be uh, an excellent professor Yeah, <laughs> um, and because actually love being a professor. Because of the different requirements and demands. Right, exactly. Right, so I didn't get any of these teaching pieces yeah. really in graduate school. Um, but, but some clearly energize you. you know? Right, exactly. And some of them were there, but I didn't think that's what I should have been doing, mm -hmm. so I didn't do them. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and they clearly energize me. I mean, that's what I like to say. I mean, I think, I don't remember if I, maybe I say this in the blog explicitly. You know, I feel like I'm a much better professor than I was a graduate student. Um, yeah. And it fits me a lot better. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I've had really candid, and this, I think this really, I thought I was a one-off for a long time. A one-off um, in going to a liberal arts? Or just or? not knowing kind of what the the landscape was, or maybe going to liberal mm. all these pieces, right? Yeah. You feel like a unique case. Yeah. And then I think after I got my faculty position, I went to, the, the next couple conferences I went to, mm. I talked to senior graduate students, just in casual conversation. Mm. And the same sort of things would come up, mm. you know? They would, they'd ask me where I am. Oh, I've never heard of that. Well, can you tell me about it? Mm. I'd tell them about my job. And they'd be amazed that a place like that exists. Right. Um, or I've talked to people or professors that, you know, if I'd known about that, I might have considered that more seriously. Or I've talked to someone who left graduate school and mm, went to industry right. said, yeah, you know what, that sounds like a job I would have really loved, but I just couldn't take it anymore in graduate school. Yeah. And so to some extent, I think there's at least knowing that those things exist mm. 
and seeing if you can mm. uh, discover them early on or mm. engage with them earlier on, mm. uh, I think is, uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of, it should be a kind of liberating thought, I think. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, you're in your, grad, you're in your PhD and you start out with these big visions about how you're going to change the world and mm. do research. Yeah. And then you realize that you have a very small corner of research <laughs> And you keep working on it, you're still excited about it. And then mm. somewhere along the lines, if you don't understand this, you say, oh, oh no, I've, done, I've been working on something for six, five, six, seven years, and maybe I'm in the wrong profession. Mm. <laughs> or, yeah. or I actually still love this stuff, but the, the way the, the jobs line up yeah. all don't seem very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I think that it's just horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think you're a, a great advocate for <laughs> just making people aware of the, the other options that are out there and the, the, just the clear enthusiasm that you have for the work that you do and the, and the life that you're able to live um, is, is going to be inspiring for people. I, ho I hope so. You know, I just, I, we're trying to figure out ways now, you know. Mm. How, can we, um, how can we share that? Because it, honestly, it, it goes to kind of almost a, bigger vision of computer science education to me, mm. too. Um, you have to think we have all these students at all these universities who are, um, you know, uh, well, even more broadly, in computer science, you know, computers impact us in every step of our life, yeah. right? And so we like to tell our students, you know, you don't have the luxury not to think about this anymore. Um, and so we have all these students in all these departments across the country um, that are not at big research schools. Mm. There are many, 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 many tiny liberal arts schools. Mm. And then we have all these PhDs we're graduating who don't see... All these people are very passionate about these ideas. Yeah. Um, and we're not connecting those two pieces very well. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I think about even the next generation of computer science yeah. practitioners, um, you know, all of our majors... You know, there seems to be a disconnect even there. Yeah. We're not connecting the people who would be the best educators yep. because they get partway through graduate school and say, this isn't what I want to do, yeah. and they leave or they, or, they, or they go to industry, not necessarily because it's the best fit, but because they see kind of a, a skewed, their personal priorities don't map to the big research yep. schools. And also from what you said, the students that you have access to at liberal arts colleges, because they have this diverse background, might be able to bring the very rich interdisciplinary perspectives that we need to solve a lot of the really difficult problems we have. Yeah, that's the, that's the ideal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, we should probably wrap up because right. we, we, uh, we have someone waiting outside <laughs> this room, unfortunately, because I would have liked to have continued talking. But Evan, thank you really very much for sharing your experiences and I uh, wish you all the best. Well, thank you. Um, it's it's great to talk about it. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.